Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Balagan, and I'm happy to have uh, Jeff Becker here with me. And Jeff, what are we going to talk about today? So we are going to be commemorating the 25th anniversary of Yitzhak Rabin's assassination next week. So I know that you have a lot of personal experience in the political realm during the Oslo Accords and during Yitzhak Rabin's tenure. And you remember specifically where you were when he was assassinated. So we're going to be talking about The legacy of Yitzhak Rabin, some of the history around the Oslo Accords, and how you were personally affected by it. Okay. Where do you want me to start? So let's first just go over some historical context. Can you speak as to who Rabin was, what was he doing that was so important, and what ended up happening to him? So Rabin was the first native-born Israeli, the ultimate Sabrais was called that uh, became prime minister in Israel. He was the IDF uh, chief of staff in the Six-Day War. He was uh, the head of the Harel Brigade who liberated, who arrived to Jerusalem, who opened the Burma Road and arrived to Jerusalem in the War of Independence. And he was leading the Labour Party at two eras. One was uh, in the 70s, When he came back from uh, the U.S. after he served as the Israel uh, ambassador to the U.S. in Washington. And back in 1992, after he won against Yitzhak Shamir from the Likud party, that was actually the beginning of uh, the era of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Likud party. And Yitzhak Rabin had a clear vision about what should be the end to the Israeli-Palestinian problem, I would say. He realized that Israelis cannot emerge with the Palestinians and that if we want to preserve the state of Israel as a Jewish state and as the nation home for the Jewish people, we need to keep a solid majority of Jews in Israel. And the only way to do it is actually to split the land just like we originally intended to, by the way, in the partition plan, which the Arabs refused to accept in 1947. He then had the chance to delegate with the PLO, who until then was considered to be an enemy of the state of Israel. The PLO, under the leadership of Yasser Arafat, was the main terrorist organization. 
but it was the representative of the Palestinian people at that time. It's interesting how you say that Rabin was chief of staff during the Six-Day War, a war in which Israel captured the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and now fast forward about 25 years from Six-Day War to the mid-1990s, yeah. from the beginning of the Oslo Accords. Yes, you 25 have, years exactly. Now you have the same person who captured the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, these territories that could really create a demographic issue for the state of Israel, all of a sudden say, you know what, I want to disassemble my creation. I want to withdraw from the West Bank. So it's pretty interesting how you have someone who started their career really off in a military position and then transitioned into being a peacemaker. Well, the saying is that you make peace with your enemies. You don't make peace with your allies. And Itzhak Rabin was not naive. He didn't think that the Palestinians would suddenly like us and that Arafat will be his lover of any chance. But he did realize that there is no other solution. I mean, we were already 1993. It's five years since the beginning of the first intifada, which started in December of 1987. The first intifada, just to remind our audience, started after a truck driver hit a, a Palestinian car, killed four people, and the Palestinians started rioting and asking for self-determination rights. Mostly it wasn't an armed riots. What did they have? Stones and sticks? That was the majority. Having that said, the Fatah was armed because they used to buy arms and get arms actually from Soviet Union at that time and from their uh, supporters in the Arab League. Egypt was a big supporter until a certain point. Then it moved to Syria and Lebanon, which is uh, you know, a state that is under Syria's <laughs> control. Mm -hmm and other Arab countries that were sponsoring the PLO and the resistance because of different interests, by the way, not necessarily a Palestinian interest. It's interesting how you bring up the First Intifada because the correlation between the First Intifada and Rabin, there's a lot there. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Yitzhak Rabin was the Minister of Defense during the First Intifada. Right. He, one of the known things, which there's controversy as to whether he said it or not, is you know, when the Palestinian protests really started to break out, he said that the Israeli response should be to break their bones. The thing about the first intifada, in my opinion, was that it was such a new phenomenon for the Israeli uh, security complex, yes. the security establishment. They had always fought conventional wars, for the most part up until that point, and they had been very good at fighting those conventional wars. But this was the first time they had to put down what you could call an internal uprising from the Palestinians directly. And from my perspective, I think that one of the reasons why Rabin was so willing to move forward with negotiating with the Palestinians in the Oslo Accords was because of kind of how spooked he got by the first intifada, realizing that we cannot continue like this. We cannot continue with these popular unrest in the West Bank because we just can't, we don't really have methods to fight against it. And it's just not sustainable for us. So, in my opinion, that's one of the reasons why I think that he went into negotiations with the Palestinians. But I also want to ask you directly, because I wasn't even born yet when this was taking place. I wasn't even close to being born yet. But um, you were boots on the ground. I mean, you were in Jerusalem 
during the Oslo Accords. Yeah. What was the sentiment? What was the atmosphere going on? What was your role during this time? So my role was uh, to be a student. <laughs> I was 10 years old when the first Intifada started. And my first memory of the Intifada was actually that we were taking um, Eged line number 25 from my childhood neighborhood, Neve Yaakov. And now you have the light railroad of Jerusalem that goes through uh, Shoafat. But at that time, it was only buses, line number 25. And I remember uh, that we were going to my late grandmother's house. We needed to take the bus to get there. And by the mosque, suddenly we were attacked with the stones and a Molotov bottle was thrown on the bus. Mm -hmm. And I remember my father jumping. My, my younger brother was just in the curb. Okay, He was half a year old, something like that. And he just jumped on top of him to cover him, you know, to defend him from the rocks. And as a kid, when I grew up in Jerusalem, I mean, my father has a lot of Arab friends. And actually, the municipality of Jerusalem is employing a lot of Palestinians from East Jerusalem. So it wasn't uncommon for Jerusalemites to integrate and meet with Palestinians. We had different relations. And suddenly having this change, this method, at that time, I didn't understand their wish to self, you know, to have their own uh, state. I only saw it through the eyes of, okay, we are Israelis, they are Arabs, they hate us, and I guess there is no solution to it. But I think that eventually, when Yitzhak Rabin came to his senses, and he said, listen, there is no solution besides separation, even though it's more complicated in Jerusalem, but it's not for this topic, I completely agreed with him. I said, it doesn't make any sense, you know, that we are here, they are there. If they don't like us and we don't like them, why do we need the integration? So as you got older, how did you become involved in taking your opinions and your political approach and implementing it into action? So that's a great question. It started of me becoming a Poel fan. I grew up in a house that from both ends was uh, quite a lefty. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a lefty, I would call it centric. I mean, because Mopai wasn't exactly a left wing like the Likud and, you know, the right wing parties were trying to portray it. They put security and the state's uh, strength first and did what was good for the state of Israel. And honestly, for my father's side, my late grandfather was actually in Mapam. So they hated the Histadrut, you know, the workers' union, the same as the Likudniks, but... I didn't grow up in a house that hated the Palestinians. I grew up in a house that wasn't observant, but we call it Masorti. It's not like what you would call Masorti in the US, okay? And we used to go to shul on a Friday evening and then go to see a poel game in Imka on Shabbat, mm -hmm. okay? And my father was a heavy smoker at that time. He also used to smoke. Um, Jerusalem was different. But I grew up in a very political uh, sphere because my neighborhood was a really hard right neighborhood. One of my first memories is actually Mayor Kahana, okay, preaching in our uh, community center. Can you explain who Mayor Kahana is? Yes. So Mayor Kahana was actually a, an American Jew who formed, not the Anti-Defamation League. The Jew, Jewish Defense League. The Jewish Defense League in New York. And he was an Orthodox Jew who believed in being proactive in order to defend himself and the community 
at that time, by the way, in New York, you got to remember that it was a hard time for Jews here. You know, it's not that today it's a lot better, but it's still better than it used to be in old times. And he formed this group of uh, young, enthusiastic Orthodox Jews who started uh, self-defending the community. He made Aliyah to Israel, and for him as an Orthodox and as a right-winger, it was, okay, this land is ours, the Arabs doesn't belong here. And he formed a movement that is called Kach. Their logo was actually the fist of the old Cherut logo. Actually, it was the Etzel, sorry. And he used to go from a place to place and talk against the Arabs. That was his whole uh, agenda. That the land is ours, they don't belong here, and that we need to get rid of them at any cost, by the way. Transferring them or killing them. At one point, for the Knesset in 1984, he won two seats. But then, at that time, even the Likud couldn't bear his uh, radical uh, approach, and he was banned from running in 1988. So he was assassinated eventually in New York, by the way. Uh, I think it was 1989 or 1990 that he was assassinated by a Muslim. But his uh, movement kept on living, and we'll get to it because some of his uh, followers were actually one of the biggest organizers of the demonstrations against Rabin and later on all of the Hardwin and they are still running for the Knesset under different umbrellas. So you seems like a fish out of water in a way, you know, you, you center left political opinions and you're just, you know, smack in the middle of a real right wing neighborhood in Jerusalem. So how did this kind of shape your worldview? Is this something that really wanted to make you, you know, go for what you really believed in? Was this, did this incentivize you? Did this de-incentivize you? Yeah, I believe that when there is a injustice or a lack of opinions, you should say your opinion. And I was always a big guy. I mean, you can't see me through the mic, but I'm quite big. I can attest to that, by the way. And I was always bigger than uh, most of my age group. Not just fat-wise. I mean, I'm talking broader and taller than the majority. So it was hard for the bullies to bully me. And then I started to become uh, active. And uh, when I got to high school, one of my friends was actually in the Labour Party's youth movement. And I was talking to him. I found it really interesting. And I believed in what Rabin was doing. So I said, you know what, I'll start volunteering there. And then that's when I started my uh, political uh, activity in Jerusalem. The Oslo Accords time were really hard, especially in Jerusalem. I mean, when we're talking about what happened, even though majority of Israelis, by the way, until this day, believe that in order to preserve Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, you have to separate from the Palestinians. It's hard for them to do the connection between that and occupying the West Bank, okay? And when Rabin came with the Oslo Accord, it had a majority of support at the beginning, but the opposition was very loud. On the other hand, Arafat himself didn't make it easy for Israelis to trust him. I still remember until this day, he first got to the Gaza Strip after signing the first Oslo Accords in Washington, D.C. in 1993, he arrived to Gaza. And he came with a huge, you know, um, convoy of cars. 
What did he have in his trunk? Guns and ammunition. Now, when you're looking at it, and that's your partner or so-called partner, and you're trying to relax the people and calm them down, and that's what you see, it doesn't bring a lot of uh, faith to your doorstep. And there was a big criticism on Arafat's moves and acts because he was playing on both sides of the court. He was on the one hand trying to compromise the Palestinians and show them that he is the leader. On the other hand, he was playing with the Americans and Israelis. First thing, because he got a lot of sponsoring. And I will say that, by the way, Arafat was corrupted. He wasn't corrupted on personal level. I mean, he lived as a poor guy until the rest of his life, seriously. But his corruption was by bribing people. Now, it's not unique in the Arab atmosphere of that time. I mean, Arabs used to do it in Arab culture for a long time. I mean, I don't know if today, but at that time, bribery was a legit thing in the tribal community. And he used to bribe people in order to stay in power. So when Arafat came to Gaza and later on was, how do you say, winking towards people who still were making terror acts, it didn't brought much uh, trust and much faith of the Israeli side within the Palestinians. But I think that the biggest shift that really crashed, uh, I would say, the trust between the parties was actually the Hebron massacre in February 25th, 1994 it was, yes, when uh, Baruch Goldstein, a Jewish settler from uh, Kiryat Arba, who was also a doctor, by the way, he was an American, he made Aliyah in 1981, and he was a Kahana fan, I knew him from the States, went inside the cave of the patriarchs, yep. right, Marat HaMachpela, and massacred 29 Palestinian observants. Worshippers. Worshippers. Who were, who were, who were in the praying. middle of praying. They were in the middle of praying, and he just, you know, went there and shot them. How do you say? Point blank. Point blank. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Until then, you had minor terror attacks. You still had stone throwings, and you had some uh, clashes, and you had some stabbings, but it wasn't on a big scale. Once Baruch Goldstein made the massacre, it shifted everything with the Palestinians. Hamas was growing, and they started having suicidal attacks in Israel. All of the bus bombing and the suicidal bombers in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, that's when the massacres begin. And that was a pretty new phenomenon for the Israeli public, correct? These bus bombings, just the, not the terrorism itself, but the approach that the radical Palestinian elements were take to terrorism because they were trying to bring it directly to the doorstep of each Israeli citizen yes. by, you know, these bus bombings. Um, there were some soldier kidnappings. Yes. I mean, they, they were really attacking the soul of the Israeli public. So how did Israeli and Palestinian society on both sides, how did they react to this growing violence and how did that shape their perception of the ongoing negotiations in the Oslo Accords? So first, allow me just to make one distinction. Attacking a soldier and attacking a civilian are two different things. And I'm saying in general, not just if it's an Israeli. Attacking a soldier or a police officer is attacking somebody who represents the sovereignty, who represents the government or the states or the, you know, the national entity. While attacking civilians, that's terror. 
And what Hamas was starting to do is that instead of targeting just soldiers and the armed forces, they actually started targeting civilians. And those were hard days. I mean, I remember going up in Jerusalem, you used to went on a bus and you would pay close attention to see who's going up. It raised the tension between Israelis and Palestinians. And listen, you need to remember that at that time, you still had plenty of Palestinians, not just in Jerusalem, all over the state of Israel, and they were still using public transportation, or they were traveling with their car. And what do you do? I mean, are you going to ban all of them for taking the bus just because, you know, one of them uh, can be a suicidal bomber? It raised the tension of Israeli people. And there was one politician who knew how to take advantage of this situation and to throw some more... Uh, I would say oil to the flames. I'd say fuel on the fire. Fuel on the uh, fire. You know, same, same thing. Yeah, that's what I was meaning. Thank you. That's what I meant. A lot of people were starting to raise voice against the Oslo Accords. Well, as you said, there was one politician in the opposition who really knew how to rile up the Israeli public in the midst of all these terror attacks. Can you name who that was? That was the head of the opposition and the leader of the Likud, Benjamin Netanyahu. The current prime minister of current the state prime of minister. I must say, he's a very talented politician, but I would argue about his uh, morals. Okay, so now we know that the Israelis and Palestinians during the Oslo Accords, there were negotiations ongoing. Oslo 1 had been signed, so Israel had withdrawn militarily, I believe, from the Gaza Strip and Jericho, correct? Yes, that was... That was the first part first of the deal. Move, yes. And Oslo II, which was the creation of areas A, B, and C in the West right. Bank, highlighted or foreshadowed what was going to be more of a permanent Israeli withdrawal from the greater West Bank. And I think that's what really started to freak out the right wing. So you were there, you were on the streets. So what were you doing when tensions were being heightened amongst the population? I want to elaborate on what you said, because what happened in Oslo too, one of Rabin's uh, coalition parties, Tzomet, left the coalition. It was uh, led by uh, Rafael Eitan, Raful, who was a former uh, chief of staff of the IDF in the Lebanon war. But they split. At that time, Raful had eight members of the Knesset. Rabin only needed three, and he got those three. They split. They're named Yehud. And everybody was talking about uh, Alex Goldfarb Mitsubishi because uh, Mitsubishi was the car of uh, vice secretaries at that time. And the right wing started targeting Alex Goldfarb saying that, you know, the Oslo Accords are illegit because they were bargained or bought in the price of a Mitsubishi. What also escalated is that we still had the bombings and we had the terror attacks and Rabin was still moving forward with the Oslo Accord saying, listen, there is no solution besides splitting the land between us and them in order to secure Israel as a nation state. But what started to escalate at that time is that the opposition started to have many rallies in the streets. When we're talking many rallies, people today are talking about Netanyahu's accusations of the rallies in front of his residence in Balfour Street in Jerusalem. I used to work in South Jerusalem and lived in North Jerusalem. And I used to take my car every day going to this area. And you had three big organizations that were leading the street rallies and demonstrations. It was Nashim Bayarok, a woman in gray, 
led by a woman called Nadia Matar. It was Moetzet Yesha. It was the original uh, representer of the settlement movement. And Zohar Tzenu, led by Moshe Feiglin, who later on joined the Likud. Most of it wasn't violent protesting, but they used to block the streets. And I had stickers supporting the Oslo Accords on my car. And every time I used to go there, they would hit my car. And, you know, Gaza Street in Jerusalem is a main uh, road. And, you know, the police did nothing. I would say more than that. When I used to go with the Labour Party youth movement to hand out stickers and flyers and uh, putting signs supporting Rabin, we used to get hit by uh, right-wingers in Jerusalem. They would, they, would, they would beat you guys up. They would beat us up, get us off the streets. And they were in way, way bigger numbers. And that takes me, by the way, to the rally on November 4th. But prior to that, I want to say that before Rabin was assassinated, there was a huge escalation on what was happening on the streets. And I would put three dates, actually five events that were huge at that time. But, you know, the right wing would always, especially Netanyahu, would always minimize it and would say, ah, it doesn't matter anything, but you guys are wrong, okay? First thing, ultra-Orthodox rabbis got uh, Din Rodef and Din Moser on Rabin, and I need to remind somebody, redefined uh, in the halacha means that it's somebody who's uh, making you damage for the Jewish people, and you need to stop him at any cause, including his life. Moser, it means that a Jew is giving another Jew to a non-Jewish entity, and in order to stop him, you can also protect yourself by killing him. That was one. Talking about Kach, and one of uh, Kahana's followers is now a lawyer in Israel, his name is Eitamar Ben Gvir. A month before the murder, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, he was interviewed in the Israeli TV. He was holding a Cadillac symbol that was Rabin's car symbol. And he said, just like we got to the symbol, we can get to Rabin. Okay? October 2nd of 1995, Pulsa Denura ceremony was held in front of the Prime Minister residence in Jerusalem. Nobody was arrested, by the way. They could do it freely. You know, we are Jews. It's the state of the Jews, blah, blah, blah. Nobody was doing anything to stop this craziness. October 5th. And when Netanyahu is always saying, I didn't see it, I was against calling Rabin a, you know, a traitor, Rabin was wrong, but he was not a traitor. October 5th, that was the big demonstration in Kikar Tziot in Jerusalem, the Zion Square, it's the main square of the city of Jerusalem. I was there, not as a supporter, but to bear witness what is going on. And the amount of hatred in the air over there that was fueled by the politicians was so huge, okay, that if I would have recognized myself as a lefty, I'm quite sure I wouldn't be coming out of there uh, without breaking some bones of my own. There was saying like, Bedam Vaeshet Rabin Negaresh, we're going to ban Rabin with fire and uh, flames. Rabin is a traitor. All of these uh, shoutings got to the politicians. It got to a point that actually three of the Likud leaders at that time, David Levy, Benny Begin, the son of Menachem Begin, and Dan Meridor, who was the secretary of Menachem Begin's government, 
said that it can't go along and they refused to play with this uh, rally. And they, they, they walked out. They walked, they walked out. out. And Benjamin Netanyahu was standing there, ignoring everything that's happening. While every time he was asked, he made a statement twice, only twice. One was at the Knesset saying that Rabin is wrong. And the other one was to a TV interview when he said, Rabin is not a traitor, he is just wrong with his policies. But that's what you can call masfatayim in Hebrew. Like that's a small tax that you pay just to cover your ass, okay? I'm not saying that uh, Netanyahu wanted Rabin dead, but he was definitely fueling it and it came up to that. His words, and unfortunately, by the way, it goes until today, he never said he's sorry about the way he led the opposition. Half a year later on, you know, his uh, election campaign was against uh, Shimon Peres saying that Peres is going to divide Jerusalem, which was a complete false, okay? But he had no problem of doing it. And that was insane. I mean, it was a horrible time to be in Israel. So what came out of this further? I mean, we had Benjamin Netanyahu who was preaching to a crowd that had pictures of her being dressed up in a kafiyah, in a SS uniform. You know, there's video evidence of people in that crowd who took pictures of Rabin's face and Both cut out the that, eyeballs. Yeah. You know, it was a real angry mob. So what happens as we move further? We had the Likud politicians who walked out. We had the opposition who was just really riling up the population. So what comes next? They literally, by the way, pumped up the audience. I mean, Moledet which was led by uh, Rehavam Zevi at that time, they actually published a comics book that was called Mishpat Poshea Shalom, the people versus the peace criminals, okay? Putting Rabin and Peres as criminals and eventually hanging them. Rehavam Zevi said it himself, you're going to end up like the Vichy government. Now, if you want to go back to history, the Vichy government was the French government who collaborated with the Nazis, and their leaders were hanged, just like General Franco in Spain. Same thing. So what do you have to understand from those things? Nobody was uh, saying anything against it. October 11th, less than a month prior to the assassination, Rabin was attacked at the Vingate Institute in Netanya by a settler who came across of him, and you can see there is a video of that, spit on him from less than a meter, like three feet apart, spit on him and shouting at him. If he had a gun, he could have done it, just like Igal Amir did less than a month later. So let's go to the day that Rabin was assassinated. Where were you that day? What memories do you have about it? So I was in Jerusalem. I didn't go to the rally. My wife went, by the way. She wasn't my wife at that time. I didn't know her. I was full of anger of the organizers because I knew some of the people who organized it. And those same people who didn't try to get people to join us, the youth in Jerusalem, to hand out the flyers and the stickers with that, suddenly trying to show, you know, the prime minister that they are uh, supporting him. Where were you when he really needed you? And I was really pissed off about this rally. I said, those people need to be on the streets on a daily basis or at least on Fridays and Saturdays to show their support. Why are they joining only on Saturday night for one rally? You know? I could understand, you know, you talk about 
getting the crap beaten out of you on the streets of Jerusalem, handing out stickers in support of the Oslo Accords. And, you know, meanwhile, everyone in Tel Aviv, you know, they'll just have this one rally where they all dance along to peace songs. I mean, you know, if you're really a supporter of something, you got to be boots on the ground and, you know, really ready to go when shit hits the fan, to be honest. And what you're saying is that a lot of people in Tel Aviv just were kind of indifferent to everything else that was going on. It's not just the people in Tel Aviv. The people I was talking about are actually people from Jerusalem, the Machers. Nothing changes in uh, Jewish politics. But then I remember that it was around quarter to ten. There was a movie on the second channel, channel two in Israel, Crocodile Dundee. They stopped the movie and they said that they have a special announcement. And I didn't know what's the special announcement, but they shifted really fast and then they switched to... um, the transmission to broadcast from Rabin Square and uh, Ara Lebarnea, who was the correspondent of uh, Channel 2, said that Rabin was shot. And about 20 minutes later, it was uh, Eitan Haber, who was uh, Rabin's secretary, passed away less than two weeks ago. He made the famous announcement that uh, Rabin is dead. I got full of rage, honestly. At that point, I remember that one of my best friends called me, and at that time, he was a Tzomet supporter, and I told him, you see, it's all because of you guys that he's dead. I remember accusing him. I, I apologize later on, but I remember it clearly, and I was full of rage. You know, just to point out now, the killer of Rabin, Yigal Amir, is still alive today, still serving a prison sentence, but... The thing that people should know about him is that he never apologized for killing Rabin. In fact, he still to this day says that he was acting on behalf of what we mentioned earlier, the recommendation by a lot of rabbis of Dean Rodef. Rabin was a traitor and he had to be dealt with at all costs. There's still a lot of people in Israel who share that same sentiment. And it's actually growing because the Israeli government and some politicians who are uncomfortable with the situation that we commemorate Rabin's memory and his uh, despicable murder. And they're uncomfortable with that. They're trying to do everything to cover up for what happened instead of strengthening the Israeli democracy and discussing what happened. They always go and remind people that Rabin called the Golan Heights settlers uh, propellers and that he wasn't uh, respective to the settlers. But that's not the main point here. You had a huge wave against the prime minister. He was unpopular, but it wasn't that that uh, got him dead. It wasn't his being unpopular. It was the actions of a radical person who was encouraged by a whole surrounding. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we need to remember. And you have this toxic environment, by the way, I can see it in some areas in the States too, not related to Israel and to the Palestinians, of course. And I can see it now in Israel also growing with everything that's happening around Netanyahu's corruption cases, that you have a lot of people who are railing against him. And they're being called traitors and anarchists. And they're being attacked, by the way, and the police is doing nothing to stop the attackers. So you get to the same tipping point that I hope it's not going to cause, you know, a civil war at one point. 
that was a real concern amongst Israeli society during the Oslo Accords was how polarized Israeli society was getting. Like, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, a civil war in a Western country in the late 20th or 21st century, it kind of sounds like a joke to them. But that was a real concern in Israel during the Oslo Accords. It was. Because look, the left is under attack, okay? And allow me to argue on that, but I think that, you know, the way that right-wing and left-wing are uh, reacting to things is a bit different. And unfortunately, among the right-wing, you have a little more tendency to be, I would call it, proactive and engaging with others, if to be polite. And that's a border that people need to understand that when you're in a democracy, you're entitled to speak, and if it doesn't align with the law, then you have the police and the law enforcement to work on that. And you cannot take the law into your own hands. And that's something that is not discussed in Israel. People are trying to cover up the assassination and they bring a lot of conspiracy theories that it was actually Shimon Peres and somebody was shouting a srak, which is a blank. Yeah, like fire to blank. Yes. And that's all bullshit. Okay, there is no way to cover it up. Unless you think that Igal Amir was sent by aliens or the Illuminati or George Soros. And that's, of course, probably a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Well, Kobe, I'm glad you brought me on. You know, we talk about how Rabin's legacy is, one, it's not really all that known in the United States, you know, in, in American society where I'm from. But even more concerning is how it's kind of being deprecated in Israeli society. So I'm glad you could have me on to talk about his legacy and share it with everybody. I thank you for joining me on this episode. We hardly spoke about his legacy. We more spoke about how polarized was the Israeli society and what happened that led to this murder and uh, actually what was the outcomes. I really want to thank you for allowing me to speak about it. Thank you very much for joining me today. And thank you, Jeff. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now and have a great day.